a powerful story, isn't it? It's uh, one of the longest in the Gospels. It's got so much witness. But of course, in all of that, what's the one thing, that, the one phrase that stands out for all of us? And I heard some of you just with bated breath filling in the line before he could say it, right? I don't know what you're saying, these complicated arguments you're making about Jesus. Here's what I know. <laughs> I was blind. Now I see, right? A beautiful, simple statement about change and conversion New sight, new life. If, if you were singing along in your head, you know those famous words of the song Mark was playing. Amazing grace, right? And it finishes that first verse. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. One of the most beautiful statements about conversion in the Christian life. The song Amazing Grace, of course, is one of the most well-known hymns in the English-speaking world. I was looking at the Wikipedia article about Amazing Grace, and they're talking about how uh, it's, you know, and probably uh, sung about 10 million times per year (laughs) across our country. It's in uh, a huge number of hymnals. Um, They gave all these anecdotes of going to sort of concerts that were secular concerts, and if that song was sung, Christians and non-Christians alike all could join together and were actually moved by the words of that song. A universal message of change and conversion and new life. A beautiful, beautiful story. So as we go through this story in chapter 9, it's it's the story about uh, light. Jesus is the light of the world. New sight, new awareness, conversion to, to understanding and to truth. But as we go through this story, it's also... A story about blindness, too, isn't it? Uh, It's a story about people and their blind spots. Richard already pointed us in the offering appeal to the religious leaders who, in John's Gospel especially, seem to have some blind spots. As the story progresses, as we see more and more uh, revelation and new light for this man, it seems to sort of cast its shadow back and we start to see all kinds of blind spots in the other characters in the story. And so today I actually want to kind of work backwards through the story and talk about three blind spots that we pick up on here. Not just to focus on blind spots, but because as you know, as you're driving, the, the most dangerous thing about a blind spot is when you don't even realize you have a blind spot, right? That's when it becomes a problem. It, you know if you're the good driver, I have a blind spot right about here. I better look before I change lanes. If you forget or don't know about the blind spot, it becomes a problem. So maybe as we look at some blind spots, part of the purpose is to help us see better. So three, fairly quickly. The first one I have called... A rule book that is rigid and rusty. It's very catchy, I know, right? Uh, Try and remember that. A rule book that is rigid and rusty. I think this is the one that kind of jumps out at the most as we hear the story, right? I mean, this trial scene that that famous line comes from is sort of a classic case of when the rules have become so central to what people are doing that they miss the point, right? Verse 16 of this story, we see that there is this, this problem developing, even amongst John uses the word schism in Greek. There is a problem amongst these religious teachers, an argument among them, because there's a problem. It has to do with Jesus. The problem is this. Uh, It's it's complicated, this good news of the blind man being healed, because of a couple things. One, this thing took place on Sabbath, right? Just like the story in chapter 5, Jesus has clearly broken several of the Sabbath laws on the one hand. So if you are a lawbreaker... 
you are clearly not from God, right? However, he has also performed this incredible miracle, this wonder of healing a man who was born blind. Surely this must be from God. But he has broken the Sabbath rules. Therefore, he cannot be from God. So you see the problem that is developing. And as they go through this trial, they begin to put the man uh, on trial to sort of ask him. They bring the parents in, try and ask them. The parents are afraid the man is a bit more bold, isn't he? And he begins to sort of get bolder as he goes. There's even that wonderful moment when he says, why do you keep asking me? Are you wanting to be his disciples too? It's a beautiful story. <laughs> but the rules versus the wonder is, is tough. It can be a blind spot at times. Now, I'm, a, I'm actually a rules kind of guy. I, I like rules. I like games. I like sports. And of course, you can't have games and sports without a good set of rules. Uh, Becky and I were visiting my, my dad and his wife a couple weekends ago, and we wanted to play a game together that uh, was new to us, Settlers of America. Some of you I know have played Settlers of Catan. Uh, this is a new version that is using the United States, and the rules are totally different. So it was, I found it amusing that nobody even had to ask. They just handed me the rule book and said, read these and let us know what it says. And that was actually fun for me. I said, absolutely. So I begin to read through. I love these rules because they have structure and they make sense and they sort of give you a game. And now you know what you're dealing with. I like rules. They're, they're valuable. But as you know, the temptation with rules sometimes is to kind of make them the main thing. Eventually that night, after I read through the rule book, we were going to play the game. That was the whole point. If I had just spent the rest of the night in the corner reading the rule book and enjoying that, the rest of my family would have thought I had some problems, right? That's missing the point. And sometimes with rules, beliefs, these kinds of things, sometimes can they become the focus so much that we lose sight of the main thing, the thing that they're supposed to be pointing us to. Sports. Think about sports. Have you ever been watching? Maybe Sharon can relate to this. You've been watching and you hear someone yell, come on, ref, let them play, right? And those are those moments where the, the spirit of the game is so exciting. They are passionate basketball players going up and down the court. And there seems to be this ref who is just intent on taking away the joy of that game. They're calling the fouls tighter than usual. They're calling everything. And some people in the audience are saying, in the, in the crowds are saying, come on, let them play. Where's the spirit? Where's the joy? Because if the rules become the main thing, it can take away from the spirit and the joy of the main thing. Or sometimes with rules. I don't know if you've had this happen, but with my sort of obsession with rules, once in a while this will happen if we're playing a game or a sport. And once in a while, all of a sudden, something surprising, something remarkable, something completely unexpected and extraordinary happens in that game that you've never seen before. And the rules, when you look at them and stop and think about it, the rules seem to say that's not allowed in this game, but something about how incredible that moment was. You start thinking, how can, I mean, that is this game in a moment. You know, that's the essence of this game. That mo Here's an example of that. If you were uh, watching basketball back in the 1940s, you would have seen a, a very tall man named George Mikan who in playing this game, he takes the basketball, he goes towards the hoop, he jumps as high as he can, high enough that he can get above the rim, he takes the ball with two hands and he throws it through the hoop, touching the rim on the way down, so he would be absolutely sure the ball was going to go through. 
the ref stopped the game. According to the story I read, the ref stopped the game and said, that can't be legal. <laughs> that is not part of this game. The rules don't allow for that. And they got together and they had a conference and they realized, actually, that was quite amazing. That was quite beautiful. This game needs to have room for that slam dunk it came to be called. Can you imagine basketball without a slam dunk? Sometimes there are these moments that are so extraordinary. We have to realize the rules maybe need to make room for this new thing. If they're too rigid, they become a blind spot. Right? Is that maybe what's happening in the story a little bit? Could these rules for the religious leaders who take them so seriously, they're good, but have they become a blind spot in the story? The back and forth continues, right, in the story? The healed man is at the center. We finally arrive at verse 28 where it sort of seems to come to a a climactic moment. They hurled insults at him, says John, and said, you are this fellow's disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. They're followers of Moses. They, they know the law, the rules, everything. And, and this fellow just doesn't seem to fit into them. And so he must be rejected. Could it be a blind spot there? Could it be that they were so committed to their interpretation of Moses' law that they had staked their lives on that when this new thing that God was doing, in fact, as Christians we celebrate over this weekend, this is the new thing that God was doing in the world. There wasn't room in their vision for what God was doing. It probably goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. We know rules, beliefs, these are not bad things, right? These are good things. These are what help us live. These are what give structure to our lives and direction. They can be beautiful, but when we lower our vision from the main thing, from the one to whom they point us and focus too much on the rules, can they become blind spots perhaps? Okay. Rules that have become rigid and... Rusty. Is that what it was? Okay. So blind spot number one. This I think is happening in this story, right? We often talk about this. But there is a second blind spot perhaps that we need to take a look at. It's a little more subtle and it comes a little earlier in the story. Unlike the other Sabbath healings, uh, in this story, the religious leaders don't actually catch Jesus in the act. Uh, the, 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 young man, the man who is healed from his blindness, is brought to the authorities by none other than his who? Did you catch it? He gets dragged in by his neighbors, right? These are the people that has, have known him since, since birth. They're the ones who know he was born blind. They see him begging every day. Remember what they said? Yeah, it, it, this part strikes me as slightly humorous if it weren't so sad, right? Uh, they bring this man to the religious leaders and we notice early in the story that that was because they were having a hard time with this whole thing too <laughs> the neighbors are confused and discussing it with each other when they see this man some are saying is this the man who used to be blind and was begging by the side of the road and others are saying no that's impossible and some are saying but it really looks like him and others are saying no it just can't be and i'm thinking to myself his eyesight was healed, but he can't look that different, right? I mean, really, the guy has had new eyesight, and it's probably changed his, his personality and the way he carries himself, and he, he looks stronger. But at the same time, is it really that hard to recognize him? And yet for these neighbors and these friends, it's difficult for them 
to, to handle this. In fact, they end up taking him to the authorities. It's so strange for them to see the guy they were so used to seeing begging by the side of the road. He's healed now. This can't be right. Save these neighbors and friends. Now, I wonder how many hundreds or even thousands of times these neighbors had friends had passed by him and dropped a few coins into his tin cup as they were supposed to do as part of their religious lives. They probably had some compassion for him. They probably talked to each other and said, ah, the poor blind man, blind from birth. We wish there was something we could do for him, poor man. And maybe in those moments, they kind of felt good about having compassion for a poor man. Maybe maybe they felt better because they had the poor man there that they could sort of give to and walk away and say, well, we're glad it's not us at least. It's just this poor blind man. And so they struggle when this man comes with new life and new sight and he's changed. They can't quite handle it. Maybe this is something that you've been through. Have you ever had a dramatic change in your life that meant everything to you, but when you went back to your neighbors and your friends and your family, they just couldn't handle it? You thought you were going to share the excitement of of change, of conversion, of new life. And yet, for them, you were met with skepticism, maybe. Or, or fear, or criticism. That's tough to take. Because there's people, you've heard people say often, right? People just don't change. People are always the same. That's just how the world is. Maybe they'll change for a minute, but they'll be back. And we're met with those kinds of of attitudes all the way. Sometimes we can be the ones with those kinds of attitudes. But that's just it, right? That's part of the news of the story is people don't have to stay the same. That's the power of God and the good news is, right? You can change. Your life can be transformed by God's power. We don't have to be the same. So you, you may be kind of like those neighbors, Maybe these are blind spots that we have when we see people changing. It makes us uncomfortable because we know how life is supposed to be. Maybe it's one of your friends and you see him or her changing and you find yourself tempted to sort of pull them back into whatever it was and just say, hey, you know, you don't need to be different. Let's go back. Maybe your spouse really is trying to break that cycle you guys have with your arguing or your fights or whatever. And you're the one saying, oh, please don't get on your high horse. You know, this is just the way we are. You don't need to change. Could we have those blind spots? Maybe you're the one who's trying to change and the people around you are skeptical or suspicious or just critical or trying to pull you down. There's news in the story because we have those blind spots. But God is saying through the story, hang on, change is possible and maybe you should find some people that will be more encouraging <laughs> in your process of change to support you. Because change can happen, but sometimes it makes us uncomfortable and we can have those blind spots. So number two, and we called that, by the way, never nothing new. Don't worry, the kids are at uh, Children's Church, so they won't hear the bad grammar. But So you can never nothing new, right? This is what we do, a blind spot, never nothing new. There's nothing new in this world. Change can't happen. But in the story, we see it indeed can, but we don't want to have those blind spots. Okay, so number three. And this, I think, is the subtlest one in this story. 
but it's also a blind spot that maybe we have. And if we get rid of it, we can see more clearly. This one I call making meaning and morals. This point happens right at the beginning of the story. You remember how this goes? Jesus and his disciples are walking around the road. Jesus sees a blind man next to the road. And what do the disciples do? Interesting. Jesus. We've been thinking about this for some time. Is, uh, is this man blind because of his sins? Which, by the way, if he's blind from birth, that doesn't make much sense, right? But they're interested anyway. Is, it, is he blind because of his sins or is he blind because of his parents' sins? Which is it, Jesus? These disciples ask, what is kind of an interesting question, right? I mean, is it easy for us to get caught up in the same question? We ask these kinds of questions. So what did cause this, Jesus? Why is this blind man suffering? His sins, his parents' sins, what's the answer to this? Does Jesus engage them in this debate while the blind man is sitting there begging? I don't think he does, does he? It is so tempting for us to get caught up in the disciples' arguments at this point, right? But Jesus completely rejects both of those options and says, if there's anything you want to gain from this, it's that this is an opportunity, another one, for God's glory to happen, for God's works to be done in this person. In fact, he says, we must do God's works while there is light. Notice the difference between the disciples' questions and Jesus' response. The disciples are asking sort of a philosophical or theological or moral question, aren't they? So, Jesus, which one is it? Jesus says, we must do the work of God while there is light and while there are blind people sitting there begging at our roadsides. Jesus' focus is not on discussing the source of this man's plight, which is challenging for us. His focus is on what? Helping the man and bringing glory to God in the process. But sometimes, I'm speaking to myself and to all of us, sometimes it is easier to philosophize, to theologize, to moralize about these questions than to actually get our hands dirty with the real problem. Around us are going on. What do we do? We ask questions, right? And that's understandable. It's a human response. Why poverty? Why hunger? Why earthquakes and tsunamis and hurricanes? Why AIDS and malaria? We ask those questions and we should. And then we spend a lot of time with very difficult answers. They may be, is it because God is punishing these people? Is it because God has abandoned these people for whatever reason? Is it because God is trying to help them and learn a certain lesson? Is it because God is trying to get our attention through their situation? Is it because the world is broken? Or is it a number of other answers that we come up with? And these are interesting and difficult questions and they have complicated, hard answers and we could debate them until eternity. But could it be that God is trying sometimes to interrupt our constant debate and say we must do the works of God while it is still daytime? Yes, there's an urgency to this. 
We must do the work of God while it is still daytime. Nighttime is coming when we cannot work anymore. But these works of God are what? They're bringing healing where there is hurting. They're bringing light where there is darkness. They're bringing comfort where there is mourning. And the opportunities presented in all these situations is the opportunity for us to do these works in all of God's glory, whether it's across the ocean, across the street, or across the pew from you. Those are the opportunities that we see in these situations. Is it possible? And how sad could it be if we were to miss sort of the new and beautiful and healing things God was doing because maybe sometimes we get too distracted calculating the signs of the times? or trying to give a reason for the tragedies that happen either across the globe or in our own church family? Can I say that as an interim senior pastor? Is it possible that we miss the new things, the healing things, the life-bringing things that God is doing around us if we start to get blinded a little bit by too much of the calculating and the explaining and the philosophizing and the debating and I'm preaching to myself. And again, those things aren't bad in and of themselves. To have a sense of urgency, realizing our time in this world is limited. Whether the earth's time is limited or our time on the earth is limited, it's limited. There is an urgency about this life. We need to live it well. That is valuable. But Jesus is saying what you do in that urgency is go do the works of God. Bring healing where there is hurting. Bring light where there is darkness. Bring comfort where there is mourning. So John tells this story, the story of Jesus, and he seems to be bringing kind of these fairly direct words to us. Maybe they sting as they do for me. They are hard words, but... He says them not just to leave us with a hard word, but because in all of this there is very, very good news in the story of Jesus. Look how John introduces us to this blind man. I think this is absolutely beautiful. Verse 1 of chapter 9, John starts this story, this new story. He says, Jesus and his disciples are walking and they see anthropos by the road now he in in greek he doesn't say they see a man or he sees the man we put that in english but literally what john has written is they see man blind from birth sitting by the side of the road not a man or the man but man could he mean as a second meaning of the story and they saw humanity sitting blind from birth by the side of the road And if so, is that true for us? Are we not born blind as human beings? We are born with mixed up motives and seeing things in convoluted ways. We have all kinds of things. We call it sin that is directing us down the wrong path. We are blind from birth. We all have our stumbling blocks. We all have our blind spots. 
But John says there is very good news because the next thing Jesus does is he kneels down in the dust. He picks up some dirt. He makes it into clay. And he creates new sight on this man. And it's John inviting us to think about the one who knelt in the dirt and formed a human being and breathed life into that human being and creates newness. Is he saying Jesus is now the one who breathes his spirit into lifeless bodies and creates new things, new life, new vision, new people? Is Jesus the one who can take all of us who are born blind from birth with a whole list of blind spots and give us new sight, give us new life, change our lives so that this life can be different and the world around us can be different? The story is full of hard words, but it's also full of hope for every one of us and for our world. God is doing a new thing all around us. He is bringing light into dark places. He's bringing healing where there is hurting. He's showing love where there is none. This is God's mission in this world. And He wants us to join Him in this mission in the world. But of course, if we want to join in God's work, that means that we need to undergo some transformation, doesn't it? We must have our eyes opened by His healing hand. We must be changed by God's grace and by His love. We must be open to having new life. We've got to be ready to encounter Jesus in His life-changing love and grace and power. And that often happens in surprising places. Remember what Jesus says? Towards the end of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, He's gathered the peoples of the world and, and He lets them know some all of them surprised that whatever they have done for the least of these, and he goes through the list of God's works that have been done for people, he says, by the way, that was me in those people. In the least of these, we find Jesus. They encountered Jesus in the people around them. There's a story I want to kind of close with that uh, may be familiar and you may have heard it before, but I want to tell it because I want to do something different at the end of it. It's a, it's a touching story about a, a busy airport. It could be Chicago, New York, whatever. There are busy business people running through the airport, briefcases swinging, heels clicking, the rush of people trying to catch a flight. There's a, a fruit stand to the side that is being run by a young woman who's selling her apples and oranges. And as these business people run by, someone goes too close, knocks over the stand, apples and oranges rolling around all over the floor. Business people keep rushing by, except one man who for whatever reason decides to turn back and he sees the fruit scattered. He sees the young woman and when he looks closer, he notices that the young woman is just sort of feeling around for the apples and oranges. She can't see. So, as you can imagine, the compassion goes up another notch for this man. He goes back. He picks up apples and oranges with this young woman, puts them back into the basket, puts the basket back on the cart, adds an extra couple $20 bills, and says, I hope this is enough to cover for your trouble. As he turns to go, the story goes, he hears the words from her, Sir, are you Jesus? 
That's a powerful moment, isn't it? Because that's what Jesus has told us to be, is his hands and feet to the world. And so for that woman, yes, is he Jesus? You know how I wish the story would end, though? The man would turn back to her and ask the same question, are you? Because Jesus also said that not only are we to be the hands and feet of Jesus to the world, but we are going to encounter Jesus in the people around us who are hurting and in need. And maybe for that businessman rushing through the airport, that moment was not only special for her, but maybe that was transformative for him. And he went away very different because he has encountered Jesus in that other person. And his life would never quite be the same because he realized what God was calling him to in his life and in this world. I think when we realize those kinds of things, what God is inviting us to, those are the changes that start to get deep inside of us. They're the changes that can change us from the inside out. Who we are, how we live, what we care about, what we value, what we do. And that will be a change so deep and so sure that we will then be able to sing, as the song goes, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. Changed me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see.